Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency from Senate to City Council. So if you haven't, please subscribe to the Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. David Neer is off for the next few weeks, but we've got the great Joe Sudbay joining us. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, David. I always love joining you on the Down Ballot. It is my favorite podcast. And I'm not just saying that because I'm going to be guest hosting with you. I really mean it. <laughs> well, it better be your favorite when you're on at the very least. <laughs> no, really, it's terrific. I just think telling the stories of what's happening around the country is really critical. And um, you and David do it so well. Well, well thank you. We've got, we've got a lot to cover this week. We're, of course, going to be talking about New Jersey, where Senator Mendez has been indicted again, and Democrats seem to be not sticking by their man this time. We're going to talk about Dave McCormick finally getting into the Pennsylvania Senate race for the Republicans, which Mitch McConnell has been begging for for months. You know, we're going to talk about redistricting news in, in Alabama and Ohio. And then we're going to be speaking with Lowell Feld, the founder of Blue Virginia, a progressive political site dedicated to Virginia politics. We're going to be going through all the competitive races this fall in Virginia. So we've got a great show coming up and we're just about to get started. So Joe, we've had one of the biggest news events, I think, in a while in terms of the Senate with this indictment of Senator Menendez that came through just a few days ago and this really significant shift where we saw a ton of people protecting him from his previous indictment and from when this investigation first started getting reported to now that this indictment is out there, all this information about you know gold bars and all of these meetings with Egyptian officials and all of that, all of the, the dirty details, I guess, are now out through the indictment. And we've seen a huge shift in both folks in New Jersey, Democratic politicians, and his fellow senators in terms of their support for Senator Menendez. Yeah, it has really been. I, I was wondering when it first happened if it would, it, it would be like the last time. And David, that we're even talking about that there was a last time for, you know, yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ. Um and, you know, when I saw the governor, Governor Murphy, say he thought that Menendez should resign, I thought it was very significant. And then also Senator Cory Booker, his seatmate in New Jersey, I thought that was very significant. I do think it's important. I do think it's important for Democrats to draw the line on, on corruption. And, you know, look, I, I'm... I'm an attorney. I'm a believer in the judicial system. I want him to have a fair trial. But you know what? I'd like him to have a fair trial while he's not a sitting United States senator. That's what I think would be best for the Democratic Party and actually for democracy. Yeah, I think there there's two points. One, as you said, like, of course, he deserves a fair trial. That doesn't mean he deserves to be a U.S. senator while all of this is going on, when it's clearly a detriment to both the people of New Jersey and to the Democratic Party of which he is a part. And, and secondly, it's it's totally acceptable for the Democratic Party to say like, hey, you may or may not get convicted, but this is bad. We're trying to do good things here. We're trying to make the place, you know, we're trying to make America a better place for the people who live here. And you being indicted and having all of this controversy is bad for what we're trying to do. So you need to step aside if you really care about the American people and let any number of other, you know, competent Democrats, you know, serve out your term um, so that we can keep trying to pass good laws. Right. And there are so many good, competent, 
Democrats from New Jersey who could easily step in and be United States senators. And I do think, David, when I saw George Santos defending him, I thought, okay, we don't need a Democratic member of the federal indictment caucus. Let Santos have that and let Republicans continue to defend him. Uh, I think it's really important, as we both said, and uh, and I really hope Menendez does the right thing and resigns. I, I think the pressure is going to build mm-hmm. and we'll see what happens. But I just... He's not going to be effective. Um, he can no longer be the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, for Christ's sakes. Um, you know, it's just too much of a distraction. And the people of New Jersey, the seat does not belong to Bob Menendez. And I think it's always important to remind people of that. This seat does not belong to Bob Menendez. It belongs to the people of New Jersey, and they deserve an effective senator. Yes, and we've seen a lot of New Jersey Democrats this time around, thankfully, see that light withdraw their support for Senator Menendez. And I think we've also seen somebody already jump in, you know, Representative Andy Kim, who, you know, won a competitive seat in South Jersey back in 2018 um, and has, you know, won competitive races since then. Um, He's already announced that he's going to jump into the Senate race, you know, primary Menendez. You know, we've already seen a number of county chairs in New Jersey say that they're not going to support Menendez. And because of New Jersey's very strange machine system where they have these county lines where all the incumbents are basically on the same row, which makes it, you know, really easy for them all to run together. And a lot of Democrats, you know, and Republicans, because they also have the system, will just go and vote the county line. So it's a big leg up. So the fact that these county chairs are already pulling their support from Menendez means it's going to be very, very hard for him if he does try to run um, next year to to have that support and, you know, be able to even win a primary if he's really stubborn and refuses to, you know, either step down or at least retire. Like, you know, I, I sort of doubt he'll resign because it would be almost impossible to force him to resign, but at least he should stop, you know, running for re-election in 2024 because he's not going to even win the primary. Right. At a minimum, that's what we should hear from him. I'm still pulling for resignation. Yeah. Though, Dave. yeah. I mean, we'll see. Maybe, you know, the indictment, it seems not good for him. So maybe he'll cut a deal with federal prosecutors. He's been very, you know, forthrightly, I'm innocent. I'll prove all this wrong. But I guess that's what you're going to say either way. So we've seen in the past, plea deals will sometimes involve a politician resigning from office. So. Right. We could see something like that. Obviously, there's more than a year to the election next year, but I can't imagine that he'll be on the ballot come November 2024. Right. And it's hard to, I mean, look, gold bars have already become a meme. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, a week ago, no one would have been talking about gold bars. Now they will forever be linked to Senator Bob Menendez. And that's just hard to, it's hard, it's hard to overcome. Yeah, well, so that's been quite the story for the week, but we did have another piece of Senate news um, nearby in Pennsylvania where Republicans, after months and months of begging for their candidate to jump in, finally got hedge fund CEO Dave McCormick to make a second bite at the apple. You know, he of course ran two years ago, lost a, a close primary race to to Dr. Oz, who, of course, went on to lose himself. So I guess McCormick thinks that he's got, you know, a better shot for some reason now in 2024. But of course, he's got a similar issue to Oz in that his ties to Pennsylvania are a little questionable. 
Yeah. I mean, he's been living in Connecticut. He's a Wall Street guy. And, you know, it, it is one of these things, you know, be careful what you ask for an RSC chair, Steve Daines. You might actually get it. And so they got their candidate. They've got McCormick. But he is running against a Pennsylvania institution. Senator Casey has long been a senator. His father was a governor. This is an institutional family in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And Casey's going to run a different campaign than Fetterman, but I hope they do the same kind of um, campaigning against another stater running to buy their seat as Fetterman did against Oz, because that's exactly what it is. They're trying to buy the Senate seat. And that's what Republicans think they can do. They We've seen it repeatedly. They go shopping for a candidate who's rich and will put a bunch of money. I think he put in like $14 million of his own money to lose in that primary to Oz in 2022. So that's what they're counting on. They're counting on his deep pockets. But, you know, voters are going to be looking at different things in 2024. And Joe Biden's going to be at the top of the ticket in Pennsylvania, a state he won in 2020. And the, the Casey and the Democrats in the state are taking nothing for granted. We just saw um, Governor uh, Shapiro instituted automatic voter registration, something that Republicans have been out of their minds about. Democrats are playing to win in Pennsylvania, and I think that's really important. You can just feel it. Yeah, I find it strange how much the Republicans have you know, played up Pennsylvania as one of the top races of the 2024 cycle. As you said, Casey, I think, is probably one of the strongest incumbents in a swing state anywhere. McCormick is obviously a rich dude. I'm sure he'll put in a ton of money. I'm sure the Republicans like that he'll put in a ton of money so they don't have to. But beyond that, he doesn't have a lot going for him. You know, he doesn't have any strong ties or any favorability that would make you think, oh, he's a particularly tough candidate outside of the checkbook. And McConnell has been listing it as like one of the races along with the, you know, the three races where Democrats are up in, in states Trump won, Ohio, Montana, and West Virginia, McConnell has been listing it as like the fourth key state, which I just think is so strange and must have been to try to induce McCormick into the race, because I would put it, you know, below, you know, Nevada has a competitive race, Arizona has a strange situation, Michigan, Wisconsin, there's a lot of races that could be competitive. And I'd probably put Pennsylvania below maybe all of those just because, Casey is so strong. And even if even if Biden has a tough go of it in 2024 in Pennsylvania, I would expect Casey to outrun him. So I don't really see McCormick's path to victory unless it's a really Republican year. Right. I agree. <laughs> I felt like I really did. It goes to what I said earlier. I feel like they wanted the money. They wanted, They don't want to have to spend any money in Pennsylvania. They want to challenge Casey. You know, they're hoping maybe that, you know, they can repeat a miracle of 2016, maybe in terms of the presidential race. I don't know, but I agree. I, I don't see it as a top uh, race. Casey has been a solid Senator, and he knows the state, knows the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He, I mean, he, he is a Pennsylvania guy. <laughs> Every he just exudes it, and that you know that matters in in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and we've seen particularly, I think, in more you know midwestern or, or northeastern states, of which Pennsylvania sort of straddles. That sort of history really matters. And there are some states, you know, right. Georgia, Nevada, where there's a lot of people moving to those states 
being new to the state doesn't matter as much necessarily as a state like, you know, we've seen it like Michigan, Pennsylvania, the fact that, you know, he's been there, he's an institution, as you said, that's going to matter to voters, particularly older voters, I think. So I think I think he's in good shape despite despite McCormick. Yeah, despite McCormick and despite McConnell's wishes, I think he's in good shape, too. So I don't have the same level of concern about that as I do other states. Now, what might have been, you know, our, our top story of the week, if not for the Menendez indictment and all of the stuff going on there, is real progress on the Alabama redistricting front. We had two two pieces of news here. The Supreme Court, without any dissents, who knows what they might have thought privately, but none of the justices dissented. They rejected Alabama's long shot appeal to stop the court in Alabama from imposing a new map. The, the Alabama case was really just like, we don't like that you ruled against us the first time. So what if you didn't rule against us this time? And I think the Supreme Court, even for somebody like Alito or Thomas, was sort of like, this is this is stupid. We, we decided this three or four months ago. Why are you back here bothering us? We've got more important cases to rule conservatively on, I think, in Thomas's and Alito's view. So that finally ended that avenue, which means the, the court in Alabama will be putting in a new map. And as part of that, we saw the special master who, who's appointed by the court to, to sort of give them options, release three maps. They're all pretty similar. The first one is essentially one of the maps that was submitted by the plaintiffs, by one of the plaintiffs. And the other two are very small variations on that same map. All of them prioritize keeping all of the districts other than the first and the second the same, so all of the sort of middle and northern Alabama districts, the same as the 2023 map that the legislature passed. And so all they do is change the first and second district to bring the second district into compliance with the Voting Rights Act. So it's a second opportunity district for for Black voters in Alabama to elect a, a candidate of their choice. Yeah, it, it was a big move. I have to say, I, I, again, let's just admit, we were completely surprised when the Supreme Court issued the Milligan decision mm-hmm. in June. And I think there was a lot of hope in right-wing circles that the Supreme Court would deliver again that Brett Kavanaugh had provided just enough of a, a window for them to come back. Mm-hmm. And they really thought that window was open and it was shut this week. And really significant. I mean, really significant. Um, and uh, I think that that was a, a huge um, sigh of relief for a lot of people. Probably not Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society types who thought, you know, <laughs> they had things wired, but it was a it was a good win for democracy. And yeah, these new maps, I look, I, I think there's a really good chance, and you can already tell that um, you know things are starting to shape up for new elections. We'll have the new maps relatively soon. We'll have a decision by the court, and we will have new districts, and we will have a competitive district in uh, the second uh, congressional district in Alabama, which, you know, David, that's something we didn't think we would be able to say even three or four months ago. So it's a, it's a big deal and it's a, it's a good opportunity for Democratic pickup. And look, this, this is, it's going to be competitive, which is great. We'll take competitive races. It, you know, one of the problems in some, in some of these states where there's so much gerrymandering is voter turnout is down. There is not that much interest. But when a competitive race happens, things change and, and there will be money spent and there will be organizing. And I just think it's driven. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what the map actually turns out to be 
and to seeing who emerges as candidates because it's it's going to be it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, there there's sort of two aspects here. One of which is that yeah, it's probably going to be a plus one Democratic pickup for Democrats in the state of Alabama going from one seat to two seats. We know how close the House is. It's a five seat margin. So so that's a big deal. But it's also just the ability for, you know, black voters, you know, and largely black Democrats in Alabama to have greater representation, to get a chance to participate in democracy. You know, in Alabama, it's so rare that Democratic voters have a chance to to elect somebody statewide. Obviously, we saw Doug Jones in that crazy election in 2017. But by and large, it's, it's a very red state. And so the statewide elections are, are largely Republican overwhelmingly. And so the opportunity, you know, for these voters in southern Alabama to, to elect a Democrat, to have a competitive race, you know, the districts are largely about 55 45 Biden Trump a few points here or there um, but in that like you said they could be competitive particularly in a Republican leaning year you could see the second be a, be a really competitive seat and that's all right but what black voters deserve is the chance to have their voice heard um, in this district and now they'll finally be able to yeah you know what was really um, interesting and jarring I think for a lot of people was the disdain that the Republican-controlled Alabama legislature head for the Supreme Court ruling. The disdain that the governor, Governor Ivey, when she signed the law and said, we know better. And even this week, the Republican Attorney General Steve Marshall issued a statement that, you know, said that they'd imposed a racist separate but equal gerrymander on the state, which, I mean, that is rich (laughs) coming from, you know, a Republican party that has gerrymandered to dilute the power of black voters in the state for almost forever, Mm -hmm. (laughs) unless the federal judiciary came in to overrule them. But man, it was, it was, it was a big, I think an eye opener for a lot of people about just how intensely some of these Republicans, particularly in a state like Alabama, did not want uh, black voters to have their voices heard. Yeah, and I think we've seen other states where, you know, maps have been struck down or Republicans have been really upset, but we haven't seen the same reaction as we have in, in Alabama. I think it's almost sort of the proof is in the pudding in the way that Alabama Republicans have reacted to this sort of opportunity for black voters to have a greater say is proof of how the Voting Rights Act is still needed Nationwide, obviously, but particularly in a state like Alabama, where there's clearly such a a racialized voting and there seems to be a real sense of outrage that black voters would have their voice heard in this situation. Absolutely. I hope Chief Justice Roberts, who kind of, you know, pretended that racism doesn't exist when um, in the Shelby County decision about 10 years ago, was paying close attention because it does exist in in the Republican Party in Alabama proved proved it over and over again at every step of the every step of the proceedings. Absolutely. Well, we've got one last piece of news for the weekly hits, and that's up in Ohio. It's another redistricting um, event. The Ohio Redistricting Commission reached a, a bipartisan, quote unquote, agreement to pass new state house maps, so state legislative maps, on Tuesday night. They did pass unanimously, but the two Democrats on the committee didn't exactly pass them enthusiastically. You know, House Minority Leader Allison Russo, she said, quote, 
to me, it's not a vote because I think these maps are fair or that this process worked the way that, we, that it was supposed to. My vote is simply to take this process out of the hands of this commission. And the reason why that's important is that the commission, if they didn't have a, a vote that was you know, bipartisan, would redraw the maps again a few years later. Well, this way the maps are, are as long as this process is in place, the maps are locked in through 2030. So I think the, the reasoning for the Democrats were to you know, take these maps, sort of not have it give the Republicans a second bite at the apple later on and look to next year when hopefully there will be an independent redistricting um, commission on the ballot for 2024 that can hopefully, you know, redraw these maps in a fair way. Because this is not, you know, it's not the most extreme Republican gerrymander we've ever seen, but it's definitely a Republican gerrymander. Absolutely. It is a Republican gerrymander. And this is a state where the voters have actually tried to fix the, the gerrymandering situation in the past, and it just hasn't come to fruition. So there are 99 members of the House. This new map of will give it, the Republicans a 61 to 38 advantage. Now, that's going to include some toss-ups, although eight of those toss-ups are Democratic toss-ups, and there will be three Republican toss-ups. But even 11, 11 out of 99 competitive seats is way more than there are right now. In the Senate, the, there are 33 members of the Senate. The breakdown will be 23, 10 for Republicans. Again, there'll be some, there'll be about four competitive districts, three Republican, one Democratic, that could be toss-ups. But like, I think it's really important. Like, So think of those margins, 61, 38, 2310. Huge Republican advantage, right? This is a state where on average, Republicans won about 54% of the vote and Democrats won 46% in the last decade. This, these districts do not represent that. And it's another one of these states where, look, Republicans have we know the shenanigans they will do. Look what we saw in August with issue one, where they tried to increase the threshold to pass a constitutional amendment because of the amendment that's coming up this November on um, reproductive rights. They do not want the voters of their state to have any say or to have fair participation in the process. And it's this is a Republican trifecta state. Now they have a Republican-controlled Supreme Court. I mean, a conservatively Republican-controlled Supreme Court. They are doing everything they can to um, rig the system. And this is just another example of it. Yeah. And obviously, you know, Republicans have consistently won statewide elections recently in Ohio, but they've won them by like six to eight points, the competitive ones, you know, Biden, Trump, you know, Ryan Vance in 2022. And so... Obviously, a fair map will probably have slightly more Republican-leaning seats than Democrat-leaning seats, and no one's trying to argue against that. But obviously, the scale is not 61-38 and 23-10. That's a much bigger margin than you would expect from fair maps. And so, you know, like I said, there's hopefully going to be a redistricting commission on the ballot in 2024. And so hopefully these maps are not used for more than one cycle. And for 2026, we can get some some more fair maps. Right. And of course, you know, the process of getting that that measure ballot measure on the ballot is being complicated by the attorney general right now, the Republican attorney general who keeps sending back and wanting new language. Again, just the whole process that they put people through to have fair representation is really um, on full display in Ohio all the time. It really is all the time, David. It's really quite amazing. And, and you know, when you think about it, not too long ago, this was the quintessential swing state and no longer is, but it's not the, like you said, the, I mean, the margins are not as extreme as they, uh, as Republicans have 
been able to shape the districts to, um, to to reflect. Yeah, and we've seen you know progress in in the Columbus suburbs and the Cincinnati suburbs. So it's not a state that's sort of completely fallen off the map by any means. Of course, there's going to be a huge fight to keep Sherry Brown in office next year. Um, so we'll just have to see how things progress, you know, in Ohio next year and and then beyond. That wraps us up for our weekly hits this week. In a moment, we're going to be talking with uh, Lowell Feld from Blue Virginia to go in depth on the Virginia state legislative races that are happening this fall. So stick with us. Joining us today is Lowell Feld, the founder of the progressive site Blue Virginia and an expert in all things Virginia politics. Welcome, Lowell. Well, thanks for having me. So let's start off by just having sort of a state of play overview of Virginia. Obviously, we know the state legislature is up both houses. So so give us sort of a broad overview of where things stand right now. Yeah, well, I mean, the um, current uh, lay of the land is that Democrats have a very small, tenuous, I would say, majority in the state Senate. Uh, 22 to 18. In 2021, we had the governor's election and Glenn Youngkin unfortunately won that, but we, the state Senate wasn't up that year. So that year it was, you know, the statewide offices and then the um, House of Delegates. So, so anyway, uh, and then the House of Delegates, we had had a 55-45 Democratic majority before that election. After that election, unfortunately, we fell to 48 seats for the Democrats. So now Republicans have a 52-48 uh, majority. So we have 22-18 in the Senate, and they have 52-48 in the House. So it's very close. And the the main thing is now Glenn Youngkin, um, if he gets a trifecta, quote-unquote, which is you know the House, the Senate, and the governor's mansion – they can pretty much turn Virginia into um, into Florida or Texas or whatever whatever state horrible red state you want to talk about you know here as a analogy or or metaphor you know um, the 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 thing is that um, he's pushing really hard because he he was not able to accomplish all of his goals in the first year and a half or whatever it's been now of his governorship because the state senate has been like a brick wall a blue brick wall against the worst of his ideas and, and, and his party banning abortion or massive tax cuts for the wealthy. But he's done a lot. He's done done a lot of damage still in, in this time because he gets to a point to all the commissions and boards control the, um, you know, now they have majorities on all the electoral boards in the state, and that's very uh, troubling. They're pulling, you know, he's trying to pull us out of uh, the regional greenhouse gas uh, initiative, Reggie, which is probably illegal, but that's going to be in court. That's going to be a legal case there. Uh, he pulled us out of ERIC, which is the, um, uh, I don't know, I forget what the acronym is, but it's it's the uh, electronic registration, like for, for, for voter registration, it's all the states in the country used to participate in this. But now red states have started pulling out of it because of basically conspiracy theories and, and craziness on the far right. So he's doing that. And then, you know, it's just uh, he's really been going after our public education system in Virginia, uh, the teaching of history. He, he, you know, his role model governor in a lot of ways, he said, is Ron DeSantis in Florida. So, so you know, really, I mean, there's a lot at stake in these upcoming elections on November 7th. Um, also note that early voting's already started, so voting's going on. That started on Friday, and um, there seems to be pretty strong turnout so far. I mean, in in these in these off odd year elections, um, 
turn out in the past be- before Trump, like before the resistance and before all the uh, you know energy that went into fighting back against Trump, it was very hard to get people to turn out for these elections. A lot of people don't focus on the state legislature and and we know how important they are. I mean, we do, but like a lot of people, maybe they're realizing it more, but it used to be like you get around 29, 30% turnout in these elections and Democratic drop off was worse than Republican drop off. So that's another problem. But in 2019, we had 42% turnout. So it's higher. And this year we may, I mean, I don't know, but we could even, maybe, maybe we'll surpass that. I don't, I don't know. Uh, Youngkin has pushed very hard for early voting. For um, Republicans, they've invested a lot of money. He's gone on Fox News a million times and, and other right-wing media to, to really – because, you know, Trump's been attacking early voting for years and it's demonizing it. But Youngkin sees that that's a huge disadvantage for them. We Democrats have started off with a huge head start in these elections with the early voting. So, you know – so anyway, that's a little bit of – I mean, I, you know, there's a lot to talk about in Virginia. There really is. You know, back in 2017, before the election, I think it's really important to remind people, Republicans controlled the House 66 to 34, almost a yeah. two-to-one margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Democrats stormed back in 2017, took the House in 2019, as you mentioned, and then lost it in 2021. And several of those races, Lowell, were like, hundred, couple hundred votes. That's the thing about these state legislative races, that they are so close and they can be so close. And there are probably like eight to 10 really competitive house races. Um, give, give us some ideas of some of the races that you're really keeping an eye on that Democrats n- need to win. Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting because, yeah, you think about you know, we actually had a, um, a redistricting amendment passed in 2020, and so now the legislators don't draw their own districts. So, I mean, that was an anti-gerrymandering, supposedly, um, amendment. And yet, still, uh, the vast majority of these districts are not really competitive. Um, I mean, we have the Virginia Public Access Project, which is nonpartisan organization, pretty well-respected here in Virginia. They did an analysis, like the House of Delegates, 100 seats, and they found seven competitive seats. And the state Senate, they found four out of 20. So, you know, and I mean, really, you could even narrow it down more than that. In the state Senate, I would say there's really, you could say two or three. Um, one of them is in the um, suburbs of D.C. in Loudoun County and a little bit of less less of Fauquier County. But, and that that's a, uh, oh, remember, this is all redistrict, new districts here. We're finally running under new new districts. So, so that district is suburban, exurban, DC, and it's trending. It's it's leans blue, certainly in a presidential election year. And that that election is between um, Democrat Russet Perry and Republican Juan Pablo Segura, who is the son of a billionaire, right wing billionaire, who's you know basically funding his campaign. So, but you know, Russet Perry is a very strong candidate. She's got a great profile. Uh, her background, I think, I don't know if you talked to her, Joe, uh, yet. I, you may have interviewed her, but the um, – Yeah, I, I was able to. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, so so that's a key race. I mean, that, that one, uh, I think, maybe is number one in terms of races to keep an eye on. I think um, also down in the Colonial Williamsburg area, um, southeast Virginia, you have an incumbent Democratic state senator, Monty Mason, who – that's a really tough district. That's about a fifth. That's a purple competitive district. And um, he really needs to hold on. If we can win those two seats, 
And then there's one other, Skylar Van Valkenburg in the um, Richmond suburbs in Henrico County. He's running against an incumbent state senator, Chauvin Donovan, a Republican, who, but that district's, in, you know, again, redistricted and it's much bluer than it used to be. So she should lose, but she's a tough, you know, you get these entrenched, these incumbents, and uh, I think she's been fairly popular, but it's a somewhat of a new district, really. So um, so that's a key one right there. I mean, there are, there are other ones, but if I were going to say... Like, which are the absolute ones to focus on on election night? I mean, I think definitely Russet Perry, she's got to win. <laughs> and then um, Monty Mason's got to win. And uh, and then Skylar Van Valkenburg. Then you have, like, you know, Danica Rome. That district in, is Manassas um, area, Prince William County. She uh, should be okay. That's a pretty good – and she's a strong candidate, and it's a pretty strong district. But it, it's on the list of – if you look at, you know, the, these different lists by V. Virginia Public Access Project or others, you know, that one's listed as possibly competitive. Then there are ones, I mean, Democrats, if we have a really strong, and remember, Democrats have been outperforming across the country in special elections for the, the entire year. So you never know. I mean, maybe we'll have a very strong night, in which case we could possibly win a couple others um, in Suffolk, Southside. Uh, Clint Jenkins, Democrat there, could possibly beat uh, Republican Emily Brewer and and that would be great. I mean, we could get up to 23, 24 seats in this, out of 40 in the state Senate. That would be nice. Have a little cushion. And um, and then Joel Griffin in the Fredericksburg Stafford area. He's running against uh, Republican Tara Durant and an independent candidate there as well. So, um, and I'm not sure how that's independent is going to draw more from the Democrat or Republican. But anyway, so those are, those are most, I think that's pretty much for the state Senate. I mean, you, you have any, maybe you have any questions on, on that before we go to the House of Delegates? Mean, there's a lot here. So I did get to speak to uh, Russet Perry on my show, yeah. State of the States, and I've uh, talked to Joel Griffin too. And I, I've just, I, I found them both really impressive. Like, I think it's important you mentioned Russet's opponent, his whole claim to fame is he's the son of a billionaire. Like, that is it. And the other, thing, that's, the other thing that seems to be kind of pervasive, both in the Senate races and in the House races is the Republican candidates don't want to publicly talk about their positions on abortion. Like they are doing everything they can to avoid that subject. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I looked at that a while, uh, not that long ago, but I mean, I've been looking at it, but I wrote something about it a, a month or two ago about, you know, you look at their websites and a lot of them have nothing, especially in the per, in the competitive districts, they just don't really talk about abortion at all. They don't even mention it. And a lot of them are trying to run away from, like, see, that's the thing, though. If you get them in a secret, like, recorded video or something, then, you, then sometimes they'll say their real position, which usually is they believe life begins at conception and all that. But, but, they, don't, but they don't say it. That's not their public position, public-facing whatever position on their website or anything like that. On their website – they're like, you know, they don't even talk, they don't talk about it at all. Or they'll say maybe the 15 weeks seems to be the, the thing they've settled on. I guess they've done a lot of polling on this and Youngkin settled on that. That's, that's, he think he argues that's a reasonable, you know, compromise. And, and I think if you look at the polling and maybe is this, I'm, I'm, I mean, this Youngkin has plenty of money. I'm sure he spent it on poll, tons of focus groups and polling or whatever. So maybe that's true that 15 weeks is, somewhat popular or not unpopular but i mean the vast definitely the strong majority of virginians it was just a new poll that came out today showed that um you know the vast the major, strong majority of virginians support the legal right 
to reproductive freedom, no question about that. And and only a tiny percentage, I think it was like 7% for support totally banning it, which I think is what the position is of a lot of these Republicans, if you got them to speak honestly. But they don't, but they won't, you know. That's right. And in, in Virginia, like just, I think a lot of our listeners know, Virginia is the last state in the South that has... Um, allows re- reproductive choice. I mean, yeah. uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, Florida have all enacted those heinous six-week abortion bans. So mm-hmm. um, it, 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 this, this, and this is all on the ballot. It's all on the ballot for November 7th. Right. And this is a huge issue. I mean, everybody's talking about the, the TV ads are coming out now and, and there's, you know, Democratic ads are saying that whatever their opponent is will ban, will vote to ban abortion. And really, I think it, I think they honestly will. I mean, I, I, I you know, Youngkin can talk about 15 weeks all he wants, but if they have the power, you know, you see what's happening with Kevin McCarthy right now. He might want to do whatever he wants to do, but he's being driven by the far right. And if the Republicans get power in Virginia, the hard right on this is going to be pushing really hard for more for more than more restrictive than fifteen weeks. I don't think so. I, I don't know. I mean, I you know, if you trust them, like I, mean, I don't, but like maybe some voters do. But I mean, I I find that hard to believe. So, um, but yeah, that's it. Yeah, this new new poll that came out today, by the way, had Democrats up a very little. I mean, like by three, like three points or something like that generic ballot so this is by uh, the university of mary washington a new new poll came out and it had yunkin actually at only 40 percent approval rating and 37 percent disapproved so which is really terrible for a uh, governor in general and virginia governors if you look back i mean well this was in the old days mark warner was in the night like 90 percent approval kane was like in the 70s you know but even bob mcdonald and others were much higher so yunkin's not now, this is only one poll, but like, I'm not convinced that Yunkin is that popular, really. Like, you know, um, so I'm not sure what effect that will have. And then oh, the other thing hanging out there before we can then we can talk maybe about the House of Delegates, but the government shutdown, that's a huge wild card. I think looks like it's going to happen. I don't know how long it's going to go. I don't know how bad it's going to get. But I don't think that's what Yunkin and company want right now. Virginia has a huge number of federal employees, military federal contract, private, you know, contractors as well. And, and they really get screwed by the way, because the federal employees, they will get paid. They'll get eventually that that's the law. They will get back pay. I don't think the private sector contractors do actually. So that that's very bad. And a, and a lot of people have bills coming and they can't, uh, yeah, you're not, you won't, you don't get paid during the shutdown. You eventually you do, but meanwhile you have to pay your bills. So that could lead, you know, I'm not sure what, political impact that will have exactly um the last time we had a shutdown right before an election was 2013 when uh terry mcauliffe was running against ken cuccinelli and mcauliffe ended up winning that election not by a lot and i look back i couldn't find a really clear indication that the shutdown gave mcauliffe a boot the only thing difference is back then there was no early voting essentially this time there's massive early voting so people are already voting um, and, and, you know, also then the shutdown ended a couple weeks before the election. And so the, um, thing, and then I remember like the next day, the headlines in the paper turned immediately to the launch of the healthcare.gov website, just debacle or whatever. And so the whole, so the last two weeks was all about that. So I'm not sure the shut, but this time the shutdown could go for a while. There's already voting. 
And um, so it could have an impact. I mean, that that's something to, that's definitely a wild card out there. Yeah, I think if there is a state in the country that is affected the most by the shutdowns, it's, you know, Virginia and Maryland, these states right around D.C., both because of the, the federal worker populations. But they also have, like you said, significant military populations. Mm-hmm. And these are the voters in the competitive areas, northern Virginia, you know, down near Norfolk, Virginia Beach, that matter in terms of these these specific districts that that Democrats need to win. Yeah, absolutely. So, so anyway, that looks like it's going to happen. I mean, I don't almost see any way out of it at this point. And um, so, yeah, just something to keep in mind. And and I, yeah, I don't know, uh, you know, how that's going to play out. But but I I, th- I do think Republicans were. I think Virginia Republicans. I think we're talking, you know, internally to the House Republicans and trying to get them to push this, you know, shutdown beyond the Virginia election. They don't want to deal with that like in the next few weeks, but I think they're going to be. So, oh, well, <laughs> I mean, it sucks. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want it in the sense of, I think it's going to hurt a lot of people politically. It might help us Democrats, but I still don't want it because I think it's terrible. Yeah. Like so many things Republicans do, it can be both terrible for the people it affects and good politically for Democrats because it's so terrible for the people it affects. Right. Yeah, I know. So anyway, uh, so you want to move on to the House of Delegates, talk a little bit about that, you know, because there's um, again, like that in the House of Delegates. So you have 100 seats there. They're all up. And, um, you know, I would say there may be eight, seven, eight. Ten, at most, maybe 10 or a little more, you know, seats that are really competitive. Um, one seat, we'll get this one out of the way, maybe first of all, one seat that I think was definitely competitive was the one with, um, you may have heard of this woman, Susanna Gibson. She was, uh, she had a scandal where she, there's, you know, sex tapes out there with her and her husband. Uh, but anyway, so I, my understanding, and that poll just came out, uh, this was a Republican poll, but I've heard some other information as well that she's fallen. She was probably leading before that, and now she's not. So that was a, that's a competitive district um, in the uh, Henrico in the Richmond suburbs, a purple district, and it was winnable. She actually outraised her opponent. So that was one I definitely was keeping an eye on. But now I'm not sure it's competitive anymore. So we may be taking that one off. So when I say there might be seven, eight, nine, ten, I'm not, you know, it's hard. This is fluid somewhat. I mean, some of the big ones, I mean, there's one in the, in the Prince William County in Northern Virginia, um, Josh Thomas, that's a, that's a big one in, in HD 21. That's like Gainesville, that's sort of Western Prince William County, Gainesville Haymarket. And he's running against the guy, John Stirrup, who was the one who was recorded on that secret video. I don't know if you saw the story in the Washington Post a few weeks ago, but basically saying he wants to ban abortion. So, you know, and that that's an example. I think if you get any of these candidates on, on secret you know, recorded audio, that's probably what they would say if they're not on guard. And apparently he wasn't. So, so anyway, I think that, that one's a big one. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, that's one Biden won by like 27 points in 2020. And, um, but McAuliffe lost it by 1.8 points. You see that with the turnout, you know, in a presidential election, and then you have the max turnout, Democrats definitely turn out in droves and for those elections, but you have drop off in like in even in a governor's election in 2021 and this is i call it the off odd year election or off off whatever you want to call it but and that's the lowest so you know so we'll see but i mean i think josh thomas that's one to keep an eye on for sure we have an incumbent in uh the richmond suburbs uh rodney willette that's a district that 
Biden won by 16 points. McAuliffe won by four. He should be okay, but we, but you never know. Again, with the turnout, drop off, all that, you know. But we, he has to win. I mean, remember, we have to pick up two for a 50-50 tie, and three seats for a 51, a na- very narrow 51-49 majority. Um, Josh Cole in Fredericksburg area. That's the district. Biden won by about 12 points. McAuliffe lost by about two. Again, I think Cole is probably favored there, but and we have to win that one. Um, uh, Michael Feggins in the Virginia Beach area, that's one that Biden won by 12 points. McAuliffe lost by two. Um, again, got to win that one. <laughs> these, these are all crucial races. I mean, I – you know, uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones. I mean, there, there's some, those are probably the biggest ones. There are probably the four big key. There are several others that you could get into if, especially if it's more of a, especially with the shutdown and everything, if it's a very good evening for Democrats, we could win another one in the uh, Suffolk Chesapeake area. Um, we have one there where, you know, it's a close one. Biden won by two points. McAuliffe lost it by seven points. So a lot of these, you know, it's going to come down to, yeah, does the turnout look more like the presidential or the gubernatorial? And, and the gubernatorial election, remember, was the year after the White House flipped. And Virginia always flips the other way. The next, I mean, you know, when uh, Trump won, the next year, Northam swept. Ralph Northam, the Democrat, swept to victory in Virginia by, by about 10 points. And in 2008, Obama won. He won Virginia by six points. The next year, 2009, Bob McDonald, the Republican, won by like 17 points. That, that's like a 23-point swing, you know. So that shows you what can happen. Um, so that's what happened. That 2021 was a bad year. But, but still, Youngkin only won by about two points. So, you know. Um, but the question is whether the turnout, it looks more like the 2017 to 1819 that's a blue wave sort of years is it more like uh the 2021 year which wasn't great 2022 which was more neutralist sort of i think those house u.s house and congressional race um that's hard to say i mean it's really and and you know we have early voting numbers coming in now but it's kind of hard to say who's voting exactly there's some modeling you can do and then there's a firm that does it l2 political data or whatever um and then there's target smart i haven't seen they haven't put out any numbers yet but uh l2 seems to be thinking that democrats have the edge right now but uh, i'm not sure if you look at some other numbers if that's I, i'm not sure how much confidence i put in that so and it's still but, early on it's still early into early voting it's only been a not even yeah. a full week yet and it is it is some of these races not you know again i do my show on sirius xm that i talk mm-hmm. to a lot of the candidates and i've talked to michael fagans he's terrific and josh cole and uh josh thomas and one of the things and it's a consistent also kimberly pope adams who's running down oh yeah in, um, district 82 very competitive race and i always ask him what are they hearing on the doors and one of the reasons i um uh, I love talking to state ledge candidates is mm-hmm. they actually have to do the doors. Right. And it's, a, and it's, you know, we can see polling, you can read polling, you can see focus groups, you can hear the Washington pundits talk about things, but when you're talking, knocking the doors, mm-hmm. you're actually hearing right from people. And man, I, the, the one consistent theme I heard, and I heard it last year too, when I was being told that abortion wasn't a top issue, abortion is a top issue for the um, candidates who are knocking doors. Kimberly Pope Adams, you know, that's a ruralish district. And she said right off the bat, abortion. I hear it every single door I knock. And I find that really fascinating. And 
And again, it's one of the reasons why Republicans are trying to hide their records. They know it, too. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a very interesting district. That's got a mix of rural and urban. It's got Petersburg uh, City in there, too. So that's one we have to pick up. We, ha- we had that district. And then uh, La Cherise Ayrard, actually, was the – I don't know if you ever talked to her, but she was the delegate there. And she lost in 2021 by very little. And, and several of those districts we did lose by only like 100 votes, like you were saying. And now La Cherise Ayrard actually knocked off um, in a primary in June Joe Morrissey, who's yeah. infamous for a lot of reasons. <laughs> so she's going to be in the state senate. Actually, she's going to end up being getting a promotion. She's going to be in the state senate. And um, but anyway, Kimberly Pope Adams is running for last year. That, essentially, that seat, although it's been changed now, it's a redistricted. So yeah, um, one other one, Travis Nemhart. That's a little tough one in Western Prince William County. It's close to Josh Thomas and Danica Rome. It's in that whole area. But his is a little more difficult it's a little it's not as blue or even a little redder but that's an interesting one too to keep an eye on so um he's terrific too i i talked to him too i i, I have said i've really been lucky i've gotten to talk to him. and actually you've helped me connect to a lot of them too yeah. they're just terrific ken really a great um group of democratic candidates this year and you know that really makes a big difference too that you have good candidates who are out there doing the doors and understand mm-hmm. understand the you know the realities of what's up against and there's a lot more money in these state legislative races yeah. than there ever have been really yeah the money is another thing i mean if i if you would and I think we did talk of several months ago, and and I think I did say this that the one my biggest worry was probably money. I mean, Yunkin is personally. I don't think he's going to spend his personal money, but he is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> he made a lot of money at Carlisle Group, uh, not necessarily doing great things or whatever. But anyway, so and and um, but he can ra- he's been raising. A lot of, if not probably most of the Republican money at this point is coming from his Spirit of Virginia pack, which that money in turn is coming from some really nasty, like right wing, you know, the um, Nazi memorabilia guy, for example, in Texas. He's gotten a bunch of money, I don't know, a million dollars, hundreds of thousands at least from that guy, and just some really right wing corporate. Really slime balls. Uh, so there, it's out of state money, and and but that's coming in, and, and so but Democrats have money too, and I mean I think the, um, you know I've been I've been waiting for the big for the all the national groups LGBTQ gun violence prevention um, voting rights you know uh, y- y- women of oh, reproductive freedom I mean you just name the, name the issue I've been waiting for them to really come in and I, and and they have been more now I mean and and the. Uh, Democrats, the National Democrats have come in with money as well. And, you know, so I think we're the last campaign finance numbers, uh, which were through the end of August, looked actually pretty good for Democrats. I mean, the in the state Senate and, and House of Delegates, we actually outraised the Republicans, which I was very pleasantly surprised, actually, about that, <laughs> because I was like bracing myself for, oh, my God, how much money dark money. Oh, there is dark money, too. That's it. You know, another thing hanging out there, the Koch brothers and others are playing around and um, putting money into um, dark sort of third party expenditures that I'm not sure how much money sloshing around out there. Probably a lot. And uh, and so so that's an issue. Now, before we let you go, I know obviously 2023 is what everybody's focused on. Very important election. But Virginia does have three competitive congressional races. And there's been some some fairly big events happening in those races already. So could you give us just sort of a, a brief rundown of, of the state of play in those races for next year? Big news that came out the other day in the 10th congressional district, which is 
Loudoun County again, the, the you know DC suburbs and and you know other areas there too. But anyway, uh, Jennifer Wexton is the incumbent uh, representative there. Ha- announced that she um, you know she had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but it turns out it's a much worse. Uh, I think it's called PSP or something. Anyway, it's really bad. Uh, so she. It's worse than Parkinson's, just regular Parkinson's. So she's she's going to finish out her term, and then she's not going to run for re-election. And, um, you know, she defeated um, Republican Barbara Comstock back in 2018, and Wexton's great. I mean, she's popular, whatever. So we, we're not going to have an incumbent, point is, in that in the 10th. And it's, it leans Democratic, but it's not solid Democratic, so it's a little worrisome. And there'll probably be a – God knows how many Democrats will run for that nomination. could be – It'd be 10, 12. I mean, I have no idea. So anyway, that that's one. Abigail Spanberger in the 7th Congressional District, of course, you probably have heard. She's definitely, almost certainly, going to be running for governor in 2025. That's our next governor's election. And remember, Youngkin can't run for re-elections one term at a time. You, you can skip a term and then run. But anyway, so uh, Spanberger, I'm not sure if she's going to run for re-election in 2024. But she, uh, but anyway, uh, bottom line of it is, she is going to be running for governor in twenty twenty five. So at some point, she's going to be vacating that, and that's a that's a purple leaning blue, but a few points. You know, it's not like again, not a safe uh, district necessarily. And then in the second congressional district, where we had a great congresswoman, Elaine Luria who was on the uh, January 6th committee, uh, got national exposure from that and all that. And then, you know, that was redistricted and she kind of got screwed in the redistricting, uh, moved definitely in the red direction. And so we have now Jen Kiggins, a Republican in there, and she's awful. I mean, I think, but, but so Lurie is not running, but we, we have one announced Democratic candidate and she's been endorsed by a lot of people, Missy Cotter Smussel, um, who's a military veteran and she's got a, really good bio, kind of somewhat similar to Luria's in a way, uh, U.S. Navy. And, you know, um, and that's good. That's a really heavily military district down in that Hampton Roads area, a major Navy, naval base and military base there. So anyway, those three are going to be, and they're all to more or less somewhat competitive. Uh, the 10th is Leans Blue, definitely the 7th somewhat leans blue and the second is toss i mean that's probably a toss-up at this point i mean might lean slightly red but in a presidential election year if it's trump and biden i mean i could see that district going for biden by a few points and then i think the 10th will go for biden i think the 7th will go for biden so really the worry is more 2026 and beyond i guess in a way well this was a great rundown of virginia elections obviously we'll be keeping a close eye on the state legislative races leading up towards the election in November. Where can people follow you and, and hear more about Virginia elections? My website is bluevirginia.us. And then, um, you know, I hate to even mention Twitter slash X at this point, but we are on there still. I and mean, for how long? I don't know. But it's at, at Blue Virginia. And then, and then we're on every pretty much all the other new ones, like, I mean, Threads and Blue Sky. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. crazy. I mean, Spoutable. And I mean, it's, it's really bizarre. Post and Mastodon. I mean, we're on all those. It's all Blue Virginia, pretty much, um, if you want to. If you're on any of those social media networks, um, are you getting off of Twitter X or whatever? Thanks for joining us. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks, Lowell. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Lowell Feld and Joe Sudbay for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our editor, Trevor Jones, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. (laughs) 